Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What is up, legends? Welcome back to yet another episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, and I personally am super excited about today's interview with Dr. Andy Galpin. Uh, for those of you who don't know Andy, he is widely respected within the health and fitness community. He's a scientist. He has his PhD in human bioenergetics. He's an absolute master of muscle physiology, which I'm super excited to dive into in today's episode. As I said, this guy is just a wealth of knowledge. You know, I've been learning from you know his research and a lot of the content that he posts for many years now, um, and it's been a goal of mine to get Dr. Andy on the fitness and lifestyle podcast and he was kind enough to to give us his time today so i hope you guys really enjoy this episode um, for more information on andy and to follow along with his content i'll have the links to his social media and website and whatnot in the show notes make sure you check out his youtube channel as well again there's just so much valuable content there um, he breaks it down for everybody to understand you know he goes into the nitty-gritty detail himself um, and delivers that content to help as many people as possible and he does a fantastic job of it so i just wanted to say thank you to andy for joining us on the podcast today and i hope you enjoy the episode uh, if you do please do take a screenshot of this show post it up on your instagram story tag myself and tag andy we'd love to hear your feedback but for now guys i hope you enjoy this conversation Andy, welcome to the the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, mate. Uh, I just wanted to kickstart things off by um, just showing my gratitude for your time today, man. I really do appreciate it. It's it's uh it's funny. I was talking to a friend yesterday about uh, about having you on on today, and uh, I was looking back through my DMs to you, and I think I first sent you a message in about 2018 or 2019. Um, I'd been following your content for some time, and and reached out. So it was it was uh, just an awesome awesome uh, experience to, to have you on and I know the audience is going to take away a lot of value. So thank you, mate. Yeah, man, my pleasure. And, uh, good on you for being persistent, I guess. That's it. That's it. Look, man, you know, the hardest thing about uh, planning this conversation today was what direction to take it in. I mean, I could sit here and, and talk to you all day. Um, the knowledge you have around so many different um, topics is just incredible. But in saying that, I thought the value would take away a lot of, uh, sorry, the audience would take away a lot of value by kind of diving a little bit today into, I guess, the, the science behind muscle hypertrophy, um, the best way we can kind of uh, execute our training to, to achieve that goal. And then also just some tips and, and advice around the nutrition side of things when it comes to building lean muscle tissue. So again, you have a wealth of knowledge and we could sit here and talk all day, but um, I guess where do we start in terms of, are you able to give us a little bit of an overview of the, the science behind muscle hypertrophy and, and, and how that works at, I guess, a, a more scientific level? Yes, yeah, quite the question. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how, uh, and when you say science of muscle hypertrophy, what, what you mean exactly, there's, there's multiple layers, right? So there's the, Genetic response is a hormonal. There's the molecular aspects of it. There's the actual uh, what what actually grows in the cell tissue, or there's the application side of the science. So what are the what are the best training regimens? What are the best eating regimens? So when you say science by hypertrophy, I'm not sure which of these many many large directions you would like me to start with. I guess like at a cellular level. 
um, just just for the audience to have a better understanding of of, of what muscle hypertrophy actually is, um, and then we can kind of dial it back a little bit and and go into a more practical side of things as well with the training and whatnot. Yeah, sure. So, muscle hypertrophy itself, the phrase uh, can be thought of if you counter it against another phrase, which is hyperplasia. So, hypertrophy is simply the growth, and typically we mean increased dimension or width of muscle. And we have to remember that your muscle is made up of millions of individual muscle cells. We call cells and muscle fibers the same thing. So I'll use those interchangeably on accident. So what you're really talking about is, okay, did my biceps get larger? Like did these muscle groups or one of these bicep muscles get larger? Yes, they did. Okay, great. Now you're assuming that that means muscle hypertrophy, but in order to understand this, that is actually true, we have to think about well, how would a whole muscle, so one of the biceps muscles or the biceps combined or whatever you want, how did they get larger and what's potential for explanation? The very first thing to consider is uh, you have multiple things that go into a whole muscle outside of muscle cells. You have connective tissue that surround each end of the muscle cell and then bundles of muscle cells and muscle groups and large muscle groups and all connected by or connective tissue. Then you've got fluid as well. And so the very first thought when someone says, my bicep is larger now, which if you're watching this, um, you just saw that it's not physically possible for my biceps to get larger, but just, to, just imagine that it, it would be possible. So that was a bunch of dry humor if you didn't catch all that. <laughs> um, so the first thing is, okay, are we sure it's not simple changes in fluid and volume? And uh, we'll get, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but that, that, that actually can happen transiently or chronically. And that it can explain a lot of uh, you know, the good kind of hypertrophy that we're looking for. So don't assume fluid just means all fake hypertrophy. Not the case. Yeah. But like if you were to work out right now and you're, you've got a pump, and mm -hmm. maybe even the next day it looks bigger, that's probably explained a lot by just say fluid buildup. And that will drain out, if you will. You're also not changing any connective tissue and, you know, Amount, amount of hours or days. So then that leaves us with our third option, which is the actual muscle cell itself got larger somehow. Okay, great. So if that got larger, then only one of two options remains. It's actually three, but most people think it's going to be one of two options, which is the muscle cells themselves got larger in diameter. And because of that, then the whole muscle itself got larger, again, typically in diameter, or you've increased the number of muscle cells. Those are your only two options. The first one is typically what we call cellular hypertrophy. And the second one is what we call hyperplasia. So either the growing of new muscle cells or the splitting of an individual cell into two cells. Either way, um, the overwhelming majority of the time, what you're looking for in normal circumstances is simple muscle hypertrophy. So hyperplasia, we can get into that later if you'd like. It's not going to be a major contributor yep. um, uh, of muscle growth in the short term. Now, after a few decades of training, potentially with some exogenous hormone use, then it starts to, you know, theoretically become a contributor. But for the most part, it's it's really coming down to that. So now we've boiled ourselves all the way down to okay, we're we're really generally talking about an increase in diameter of the individual muscle cells. And if you do that, the spacing that nerves occur from one cell to the next cell has to be maintained. So if, okay. if two cells are some distance apart and they both grow, then they're smashing up against each other. That's not going to work. So 
you respond by simply increasing the width or the, again, the diameter so that each one can maintain its appropriate spacing. So that's, that's at the, the, you know, the gross anatomy level. That's what we're looking at for muscle hypertrophy. And then within that, we can start asking questions about, well, what were the stimuli? What were the regulators? Uh, what were the mechanisms? These are terms we would throw out from inside the cell that induced that response. And there's a genetic cascade, there are signaling protein cascades, there are hormonal cascades that lead to those activation that then stimulate and cause it. So those are the, the next big levels. And if you do those things, then we can talk, start talking about, okay, what part of the cell and what type of hypertrophy? Now, again, we're talking about hypertrophy of the cell. Yep. Hypertrophy of the cell is different than hypertrophy of the whole muscle. Mm -hmm. And these distinctions are important or not, if you want to be interested yep. in muscle science, right? Um, there's a couple of different ways that the muscle cell itself can increase its diameter. And one of them would simply be increasing what we'll call contractile proteins. So inside each muscle cell, you've got two important proteins called myosin and actin. And those are what contribute to what we call the sliding filament theory. So the myosin will basically, they're, they're stacked on top of each other yep. in three dimension, but the myosin will reach up and grab the actin and it'll pull two actin molecules together. And that's what causes the muscle to shorten. They stack on top of each other. And that's why the biceps, you know, the peak goes up because yep. Contracted at the peak that's higher, the myosin actin are stacked on top of each other as opposed to laying longitudinally next to each other, in effect, kind of. Okay, so if you put more of those in there, then there's more total of these uh, of these proteins inside the cells, and the cell diameter has to get larger so that these proteins aren't, it's called lattice spacing, but they can't be smashed up against each other because they can't mm -hmm. contract. And the second one is called sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, which is really more similar to simply adding water or total fluid um inside the actual individual cells and that is also a training adaptation and it is a can be a somewhat permanent one so that's really the the gross kind of down to the microanatomy yeah as quickly as i can you could then go into what are the mechanisms so what are the things that need to happen intracellularly or extracellularly to induce or cause and then what are the differentiators so why does one signal induce sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and another signal induces contractile hypertrophy mm. Or do you then just jump straight to the practical recommendations, um, volume, intensities, reps, you know, things like that. I would love to do, even if it's just briefly, just touch on, on what causes those different responses, if possible. Yeah. So the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy thing is a good example of why I defend bro science for the most part. Okay. Yeah. Because bro science is often right. Um, it's usually fake science and bro science until it turns into real science. Right. <laughs> Now, like a little bit of bro science in terms of there, there's plenty of kooky things that folks do, mm -hmm. but just because it hasn't been studied yet doesn't mean it's been studied and falsified. It's a very important distinction. So a lot of bro science is not fake. It just hasn't been studied yet. Okay. Sometimes then we study it and realize, okay, that was fake as shit. Yeah. <laughs> that, was wrong, that was crazy talk. But sometimes it turns out to be like, that was pretty right. Uh, and I, I apologize for the screaming two and four year old in the background. It's, no stress at all. I don't all. know how loud it is on your end. <laughs> I'm sure my I'm sure my dog will come in and start singing at some point. He usually does whenever I record a podcast. So, all right, look forward to that. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, the um, the circumplasm hypertrophy thing is a classic example of that. So I remember being a kid, and this is the things we talked about from the sorry, <laughs> it's um, okay <laughs> from the '80s, 
and 90s and people were talking about uh, this type of training does type of plasmic hypertrophy and this type does normal hypertrophy and everyone was like that's bullshit because it was mm-hmm. well no one had studied it because we didn't really have the laboratory methods yeah and, and ability to do that well now that we do uh, just recently and i'd say in the last five years um, a lot of this goes to mike roberts at auburn and his lab they, they found out some assays and figured out how to, to do this in the lab and turned out actually that looks like that's actually happening so you know for 20 years it was pseudoscience and it was you know, blah, 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 until someone actually tried to study it in the very first time. It was like, oh, shit, this looks like this is real. This is shit. <laughs> so, so having said that, it, that, that preamble is important because we don't know a lot. Um, we may find out in a few years, oh, geez, actually, that way of measuring it is faulty. So now mm-hmm. we're going to go back and actually say that it's wrong or yep. there's some other methodological or technological area. Like Sometimes this stuff is really difficult to figure out. So as it stands now, it looks like it's a real phenomenon. It looks like it's a fairly normal phenomenon that doesn't need, you know, crazy amounts of testosterone or, or any other hormone therapy. Like it just looks like a fairly normal response. The question then of which type of training tends to induce it versus not, again, that's kind of outstanding. There's some preliminary work, but I would say we're very far from knowing an answer because we're very far from being really solidified that it actually happens, even yep. though now they've done a number of studies. Um, but these things, like we need to find multiple labs that can reproduce it. And we, as much as I love Mike, I love Mike and their lab. They're great. Typically, you get it. Like, we, just, sorry, just to cut you off there. Typically, like with uh, how many like test subjects are, are in a in a, a te- uh, like a lab, like a research around this type of stuff, like to to get that conclusion. Oh, I mean, it totally depends on the kind of study design. Um, right. Most like human performance, muscle biopsy related things are going to be eight to 15 okay. people per group, you know, yep. something like that. Yeah. Cool. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. Um, so it, it's tough to say at this point, uh, you know, Mike has, has put a couple of really nice open access review articles out there. So you folks can go um, look at it and they break down what they know about, what we don't know about sarcoplasmic microtrophy if you get really interested in this field. So um, right now, I'd say it's like, we don't exactly know, and we don't know if it really matters. So to, should you do separate types of training to maximize contractile hypertrophy versus separate types of training that maximize sarcoplasmic hypertrophy? We don't know if it even matters. We don't know. Um, what it certainly looks like is there's a difference at training stage. You know, someone who's kind of new in their training career versus moderate versus far into their training career. Um, preliminary stuff looks like, hey, that actually may be sort of explaining. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the different types of hypertrophy initially. Uh, it makes sense that fluid is, is probably accounting for more initial hypertrophy. And again, initial now, I'm even talking about months. Okay. Um, and then, you know, later on in the career is when you'll really start to add a significant amount of contractile protein. Uh, yeah, no room yet to be super convinced, but that's what it looks like right now. Like, it looks like a pretty decent story that would make sort of intuitive sense. That's why I leaned it, I tend to agree, because it's sort of like, yeah. Okay, that would make intuitive sense. Now you're combining five or six different studies, and they're all kind of pointing in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Starts to give you like decent confidence that there's something potentially real there. When you spoke before, um, just to quickly go on a little tangent here with the the increase of the cells or the expansion of the cells, is that in a very base level um, to give the audience an understanding like where muscle memory comes from. So you, so if you've, you've previously trained and you've increased the, either the size of the cell or the amount of cells, and then you have some time off and then you come back to training and that it's a lot easier to get that gro- the, the size and the strength back. Is that kind of on a base level 
how that occurs? Uh, okay, so you've opened up quite the can of worms here. <laughs> um, okay, so big picture wise, there's a couple of ways to think about muscle memory. So muscle memory one is skill related. Yep. So, hey, I have the, the classic old cliche of riding a bike, right? I haven't rode a bike in 10 years and I hop right back on and it takes two or three reps or a day or Okay, that's mostly neurological, mm-hmm. right? What we're really referring to here is the type of muscle memory that you outlined, which is it took me less time to get to a certain mu- level of muscle size than it did the very first time, mm-hmm. right? So I used to be 24-inch pythons. Uh, then I didn't train. Then went down to 16-inch, and now it'll take me less time to get back to 24 than it did the very first time. Mm-hmm. You know, again, past puberty. All that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, in terms of what's the explanation for it, that starts to get very tricky. Um, we are learning a tremendous amount every month on the internal regulators of muscle growth, the role of satellite cells or not, the role of nuclei or multinucleation or not. And I would say, had you asked me this a year ago, I would have had a different answer. Six months ago, right. I would have changed. Three months ago, I would have changed my answer back to the original one. And now I'm back off of that again uh, right. because the paper just got published maybe a few weeks ago that challenged a lot of, of what the, the notions were out there regarding the relevance and role of nucleation. And that, in fact, to show it, it doesn't, you don't need it. Okay. Right. Pertrophy. Um, so <laughs> for years, I'm like, well, it's just, you know, and I can explain how the nucleation sort of works, but it's very tricky. So there's some people that are working very hard and publishing very frequently in this area. And so I'd say we are, we're going through the growing pains right now of figuring out what the hell that thing is. I mean, conceptually, yes, one way or the other, there is some internal upregulation of the mechanisms that are required to induce additional muscle size. And they're staying around somehow, which okay. ones they are specifically seems to be contentious. Right, so it's uh, ever evolving. On the on the practical side of things with with training, you know, I think a lot of the listeners that would be something that they are really interested in, and, and questions that I get quite often. Uh, and I'm sure you would be the same. I'm sure your answer is fuckloads better than mine. Um, in terms yes. of the pra- in terms of the practical side of things, when we talk about you know sets, reps, volume, all that type of stuff, exercise selection, is there a bit of a an overview? Um, that you're able to give us in terms of what people should be aiming for across the span of say a week um, with their, with their training loads. Okay. Um, yes and no. So number one, let's start with what we call the modifiable variables. And you, you can have a slightly different listen on you yep. depending on kind of where you're at. But in general, we're talking about the acronym COFA verb. So the exercise choice, mm-hmm. um, the exercise order, the intensity, so this is percent of your one rep max, typically for hypertrophy. Um, the volume, so this is reps times sets completed per muscle group, uh, and typically expressed as both per day and per week. You've got um, the frequency, so how many days per week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got the, some other ones that are not relevant, sort of like progression over time. Um, and the rest intervals. So this is the amount of rest you take Typically in hypertrophy sakes, uh, rest between sets. Yeah. Yeah, that I can get a little shake it in. So you can just go one by one and start talking about what do we know, what do we not know in terms of maximizing muscle hypertrophy or irrelevant or 
slight advantage versus none. So that would probably be the best way to attack it because your initial conversation in there is you said like, what do I need to hit per week? Well, that's not that's not answerable because you could set these things up differently in which okay. you could try to hit all these different nodes per week, or you could do a more of a linear periodization style where it is, I'm going to stick to this thing for a month or six yep. weeks or yep. eight weeks and then change. So it's not necessarily a per week. I would say, I think the better way to get after this one, I think you're really getting towards is maybe what are the things I need to get at total throughout the year? Okay. Yeah, for sure. And whether you want to put those up in like Mondays or more of this time of day and Wednesdays or this kind of day or, or Thursdays or whatever, that's cool. Or it could just simply be repeats. So yep. that differentiation is maybe less as to what I think you need to get in throughout the year, I okay. guess is a bigger picture. So you start off with exercise choice, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Seems to be um, a couple of things. Number one, generally full range of motion is going to give you on average the better results. That doesn't mean you can never do partial range of motion stuff. Of course you can, all those things. Again, I'm saying on average throughout the year, you probably want to spend more time doing full range of motion with the caveat, of course, that you can maintain good positions. You're not, say, doing trying to do a full range of motion front squat and having a terrible lumbar position Running, or yep. wrist position and all these things, right? So assuming you can get it. If you can't, then you need to either change your exercise or change your range of motion. But almost always the case. Second piece that's important to note with, um, let's say three pieces, actually. So, so number two of this is, Exercise selection seems to matter a lot for people who really need specific muscular development in specific areas. And this is in large part because of musculature as well as anthropometrics. What the hell does that even mean? Okay. If most of us spend most of our time doing the big ones, bench, bent row, squat, split squats, hinging, mm -hmm. like that's going to get you most of the way. Yeah. However, we need to individualize past that for a couple of reasons. If you look at the literature on, for example, the hamstrings, it seems to be you just it, unlikely you're going to get maximal hamstrings development by simply doing RDLs, yeah. deadlifts. You're probably going to have to add some machine hamstring curls, mm -hmm. which is, is fairly new uh, finding, but that's probably going to happen. This, the second kind of piece in the second piece is the anthropometrics. So let's say you and I both got, got on there and we both did a bench and we did six weeks of bench and we both had the same kind of grip, same sort of programming notes. Um, you might get a lot of growth and development in your anterior deltoid and I might get a bunch in my tricep and you might get like a decent amount in your pec and I might get none. And that's just depends on, you know, the distance between your shoulder to your elbow and your elbow to your hand and the distance between your sternum to your shoulder and all these different, your technique, yeah. a lot of things that go into it. So we need to pay attention a little bit to individualization when it comes to exercise choice. And I think Mike Israel has outlined this stuff wonderfully. Yeah. And he's basically said, think about three things. If you're trying to increase, the, increase let's say, your pec, your upper pec, right? Yep. Upper and mid pec. We'll handle lower pec later. And you're benching. Let's just say you're doing a classic barbell bench. And you're not feeling it during the bench. So you're not feeling like all the burns coming in your shoulder or tricep or something. Okay. You're not feeling it at all. The next day, a couple of days later, you're not getting sore at all. Mm -hmm. 
right? And it's not actually growing. So four yeah. weeks later, it's not any bigger. Yeah. Then you have a pretty good indication of like, yeah, maybe fucking damn, it works great for. Yeah. It's just not a good exercise for you for chest development. So yeah. you maybe need to go incline bench or you need to go dumbbell bench or you need to go pec fly machine or you need to go like mm-hmm. any number of cable crossovers the ways to get so when it comes to exercise choice i can generally spend most of your time on the big exercises isolation is fine generally range of motion um the bigger the better but certainly some partial range of motion on different exercises or different mm-hmm. days or different parts of the year yes yeah. so you can spend a whole month doing nothing but partial range of motion that, that, fine right taking a bigger picture of it and then individualization based on you know are you feeling the pump in the session is it getting sore are you getting results and there's some other things you can kind of add in there that mike does a little bit differently but that's the basic gist of what you're getting at so anything else you want to go into in terms of exercise choice i guess a question that comes up quite often is how often people should be rotating through say they're, they're doing their compound movement say they're, they're doing a front squat for their uh, for their lower body, how often should that be rotated through to another exercise, if at all? When they're when they're talking progressive overload and whether or not they need to be rotating, get getting a bit more variety with exercises. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good one. A couple of things. Um, there's no hard and fast rule here. There's no research. There's mm-hmm. no data on, hey, after six weeks or six months, the stimuli starts to go down. We don't have anything on that. Um, if you're continuing to make progress, continue to do it. If you feel like you're not, then maybe it's time to switch it up. I think um, probably with a general big exercise choice like that, you know, like you could probably take that thing six months or more. Okay. Yeah. Maybe right. long, like you, like yeah. if you look at weightlifters, like they're never going to change. Yeah, <laughs> like this for is sure. The, yeah. And they continue to grow. Yeah. So yeah. Now they're optimizing for strength and power, mm-hmm. not most like hypertrophy. So one could argue off of that. Um, I think. The, the more realistic answer is like every, I would say 10 weeks is probably okay. a good frame Yep. just to make sure that say you don't have fantastic movement patterns. You feel okay, but like your knee starts to get a little bit like talking to you a little bit when you front squat, you know, okay, maybe, maybe switch it up a little bit. Yeah. It's just slightly different movement patterns, slightly different wear and tear over the course of your six year or eight year career or journey. Mm-hmm probably helps to switch it up a little bit more frequently. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, if you wanted to keep it close to your microcycle or your microcycle or your mesocycle or however you split up the training, if it's yeah. six or eight weeks, hey, that's probably fine. What do you say to the people that are on the other end of the spectrum? Um, you know, I'm talking about you kind of gen pop clients who get uh, bored, get bored with their exercises and, and are rotating through, say the movement's very similar, if not the same each week. Uh, but they're rotating through the exercise selection too too often. Is that going to be detrimental to their to their progress over time, even if they're still doing a similar movement and overloading that movement? Okay. Theoretically, as long as that muscle group is firing at the exact same volume and intent, mm. 
it won't matter. Right. Now, in reality, that that almost that's it's almost impossible to do. Yeah, yeah. A couple of reasons why. Let's say you're front squatting and you do front squat for two weeks and you get tired of front squat and you want to switch to lunges. Okay, fine. Well, are you sure that your foot, your front and back position of your foot are getting you at the exact same angle that you got in for front mm. squat? Yeah. Probably not. You're probably just step standing there. You're just doing them, right? You're not really paying attention to the position of your ankle. Remember, so you're probably not getting the same recruitment. So now all of a sudden you're getting sore in your glutes a little bit more than you used to instead of just your quad. So you've taken it out there. Number two, the biggest one is progressive overload becomes tremendously difficult because you don't get a really good sense of what to use, right? So you switch every couple of weeks. Uh, what do you think you should do here? I don't know, like grab the 20s maybe? Grab the four, <laughs> like you don't know where you're at. Yeah. It's very difficult unless you have just like a giant list of all exercise variations what you can do, what weights, the position, right? So are you holding two dumbbells? Are you holding them in a front rack position? Are you holding them down? Oh, that's different now. Are you holding it in one side? Like, is it rear fit elevated by two inches? Is it front fit elevated by six inches? Are it, like, are you walking lunges? Are you step back lunges? Like all of these little variables matter and it's going to change the number. So it becomes very difficult to progressively overload and you're almost always going to short change yourself right you're either gonna guess and it's just gonna be way too fucking heavy <laughs> you can't yeah. like, you're three and you're just like getting buried most likely that's gonna be way too light so it's it's best to stick with one for probably at least six to eight weeks so you can get a feel of like okay 45s are any channel my limit here and I, I could do eight and i start to break down at nine like get locked in like and you can really get those good quality reps in and not just be guessing and wasting half your volume on just building yeah. up to a number that was actually good yeah i think for the listener as well um and I'm sure Andy, you'd agree is that, is that like for the average person, your focus should be, as we've touched on already, like strength training is a skill, like squatting is a skill. So if you are totally. switching it out every couple of weeks, then you, you can't be surprised that your, your squat is not improving and the movement pattern's not improving if you're never sticking with it long enough to see those improvements. In terms of uh, exercise order, I think this is a, a really interesting one. Uh, what's, what's, I guess, your findings on that and your recommendations in terms of ordering the exercises in a workout? Yeah, so I come from performance-based sports, both personally yeah. and professionally. So I don't work with, um, I, I don't work with professional bodybuilders. I work with uh, a lot of fighters, and major league baseball players, and professional golfers and things mm -hmm. like that. Right. So I'm always hedged towards power, speed, and strength over hypertrophy. Yeah. Generally, right. So my default to the exercise order answer is always start with high speed high neurological demand stuff first. Then you're going to move towards strength. And then you're going to move towards hypertrophy and then move towards fatigue. That's a very classic breakdown of exercise order. Having said that, for someone who's simply focused on muscle hypertrophy, speed is irrelevant. You're not going to do it. Yeah. Power you're not really doing. Strength is even just like a, it's only something you're doing to help you aid in your, your hypertrophy. <laughs> yeah. So what it looks like in terms of order is now you all, the only question is really large muscle groups versus isolation. Yeah. Again, because of my background, I generally like and prefer to do the big mm -hmm. movement patterns, bilateral barbell stuff first, and then work your way down to isolation. In reality, as long as you can complete the same amount of total volume at the same intent, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot, the order. So if you want to do your tricep kickbacks before you go to your bench, it's probably fine for yeah. most people. I mean, uh, this is again, just a little side note here. Um, I, I believe it was 
might have even been your conversation with Rogan where you kind of dive into um, the specifics around the speed and power within an exercise such as a box jump and yeah. how a lot of people do those later in a workout or throw them into their, say, their circuits and they're doing them under fatigue and, and towards the end of the session. Are you able to quickly clarify um, for those listening that are trying to increase their speed and strength using a box jump where in the workout that should be placed and, and a typical uh, rep range and rest period that, that should be utilized to actually see the benefits of the speed and power? Yeah. So I actually put something out like a couple of weeks ago uh, on what I call the rule of three by five. So for speed, power, and strength, mm-hmm. just remember three to five. And what that means is choose three to five exercises, do it three to five times per week, three to five sets per exercise, three to five reps per set. And you know, you're, you're, you're pretty much good. Do that for three to five weeks. Like it, yeah. it's a pretty good uh, place. Um, and the reason why that matters is if you want to get better at moving fast, you have to move fast. Moving slow under fatigue does not enhance maximal mm. speed. Like it, it should make extremely yeah. intuitive sense, right? Yeah. If you want to get stronger, moving at a suboptimal weight, really slow does not help you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it would be akin to if I had a major league baseball player say, Hey, I want to, you know, put five miles per hour on my fastball. And I say, okay, let's, let's, let's go jog. Let's go do some light walking. <laughs> You'd be like, what? <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. Like it's the same damn thing. Like you want to jump higher. So you're jumping on a box 35 times in a row <laughs> until you throw up. Like what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> Yeah, or it's you're doing sense. it at the end of your workout when you're when you've already thrown up from all your leg presses and everything, and then you're gonna try to jump higher, and now your max hurt <laughs> is half. Like, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah, yeah. So for those listening, I mean, that comes into that that uh, when you're neurally fresh at the beginning of the workout, once you've warmed up yeah. and you've done your activation work, then that's when you want to place that in there. In terms of yeah. in intensity, Andy, um, are you able to give us a bit of an overview of that as well, just in the in the order yeah. of these these uh this yeah. list? Yeah, for hypertrophy. Yeah. Uh, intensity seems to be pretty irrelevant. Okay. So you can't fuck that up. Yeah. <laughs> which is really, really cool. Um, it's one of the reasons yeah. why, like, I don't mean my demeanor wrong, but um, like I always joke at the beginning of the semester for almost 15 years now. I'm like, we're going to spend way more time talking about strength training um, because hypertrophy is, it's idiot proof. Like you, you really can't screw it up in a lot of ways. You can screw up strength training. You yeah. can for sure screw up power and speed. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to screw up because if let's say you get 30% of your one rep max, mm-hmm. as long as you take it to fatigue and you did 30 or 35 reps, you'll probably, you know, you will get the same amount of hypertrophy yeah. as if you did a set of eight at mm-hmm. 80%. Yeah. It's literally going to give you the same amount of muscle growth. So I'm like anywhere between 30 and 85% is probably fine. Yeah. It's just like every percentage you could ever actually do. Like, right? yeah. So it's really irrelevant. And I guess it just comes down to practicality in terms of like how much time you're spending on each set and, and, and what the actual ideal rep range is, which we'll touch on soon. But yeah. Well, yes, because it goes back to the initial part of the conversation when we were sort of lightly talking about different mechanisms. Yep. You have different ways to induce muscle growth and the different rep ranges cause different types uh, of activation yeah. that induce muscle growth. Mm-hmm. So you're getting there in a different route. It's not the same, but the net result that you care about, which is how big is are my arms now, it, it, it's sort of irrelevant. So 
Um, intensity is the primary driver of strength adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay? It is not the primary driver or even an important one, really, for hypertrophy. Hypertrophy. Volume is your primary driver yeah. for muscle growth. Volume is not an incredibly relevant uh, piece of information for strength adaptations. Yeah. It is there. So um, if you go through each of your adaptations and you go through endurance and you go through speed and you, and you just think about what's causing the thing, then that's the variable you should spend the most time caring about. So that kind of leads us nicely into yeah. the volume discussion for hypertrophy. Um, intensity doesn't really matter. That's be- and reps per set don't matter. Like as long as you get to a certain level of muscular failure. Okay. That's all that matters. So if you did two sets of two at 20%, that's not going to induce any hypertrophy, <laughs> right? If you did one set of one at 95%, that's not going to induce much hypertrophy either. The volume is just way, way, way too low. Yep. Right? If you did two sets of 30 at 30%, now, you might get there because you're eventually going to reach those fatigue levels once you get up there. So the question is, do you want to fatigue from repetitions or do you want to fatigue? And this is what we'll call um, like metabolic yep. fatigue, right? Or metabolic strain or metabolic stress. Or do you want to fatigue from mechanical tension, which is heavy? So you're doing a heavy set of six or a heavy set of eight. Then the fatigue is really, or the fatigue is going to be there, but it's mostly going to be a driver of this is too damn heavy. Like I can't do another rep. Yeah. This is like, 30 reps when you're on rep 32 it's not heavy it's just like i can't feel my arm it's just yeah. not moving anymore and i'm getting fucking burn, bored burn, burn, burn. <laughs> yeah i'm getting fucking bored <laughs> yeah. answer, right <laughs> um so in, in terms of percent it, it doesn't really matter okay um the one the thing i guess the volume variable you want to pay attention to mostly is just what do you get accomplished per week per muscle group and it looks like roughly 10 sets per week per muscle group is kind of the minimum number to get the bar moving. So if you can imagine doing an upper body workout day, and just, and sorry, bench, just to clarify, sorry, before you go on Andy, when you say 10 sets as a minimum and you've already mentioned how it's largely irrelevant, the intensity is that 10 sets that are just as long as they're executed at a high quality and they go towards, uh, towards fatigue. Yep. Right. So the actual, the rep range really doesn't have as much relevance as what people would think. Um, yes and no relevance. Yeah. Because if somebody completes 3000 reps per month and somebody completes 13,000, mm-hmm. that's relevant. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Beating on your joints, health, it's, mm. it's very, very relevant. Will you see the same amount of growth in the first six weeks? Probably. That doesn't mean it's not irrelevant for yeah, yeah. Long you're not time. breaking and busting. And yeah, this is when you need a coach. Yeah. How they're doing, <laughs> yeah. Not just a program that gets you the biggest possible for the first six weeks and then everything starts hurting. Yeah. So relevant. Yes. Yep. And no. Yeah. It's a nice clarification there. Cool. Um, so yeah, that 10 sets is sort of like, now remember that's an amalgamation of all the studies thrown together this is untrained and trained and this is squatting and benching and this is such a 30 and such a so there's a lot of like what about yeah 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 there's a lot of i get it 10 sets is a super super rough guideline yeah very rough 
the more trained you are, the probably the higher that gets. And it starts to really move up per week in terms of maybe even close to 20 to 25. Is it's there a maybe, threshold where when you're going above that, you're really kind of not doing yourself any favors? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's tricky because it depends on training. Yeah. Uh, it depends on training age and background, depends on caloric intake mm-hmm. and other controls. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so right now, like that's just sort of the number. But, you know, 20 sets per week of eccentrics, uh, you know, at 85%, that's not the same as 20 sets a week of bicep curls. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the same on your glutes as it is on your, yeah. So when we tricep muscles, so so it's just a rough, like, yeah, conceptual idea of, you know, 10 to 20. And what I'd say is just to finalize this within that range, it does probably look like more dose is better. Okay. Yeah. So if you do 10 and you can get to 12, that probably is better. 12 can get to 15. That's probably better at some point for sure. It falls off the cliff. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. Um, and it, and if you've been like lifting hard for a year, that's you would act, we would actually still call you novice. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I've been working out for a long ass time, bro. I'm in great shape, like six <laughs> weeks. Like, no, no, no. Like, you're, you're a novice. Yeah. Like your body is real. Cause remember bone and tendon and all that, like it takes a very long time to adapt. So you, you got to give yourself a long time to really start growing into these 20 to 25 sets working sets per week. So for the listener that's focusing purely uh, and their goal is hypertrophy and it's not as much a, a strength goal. If they're focusing purely on overloading, like seeing progressive overload in terms of sticking to the similar rep range, but adding weight to the bar each week on their compound lifts, is that something that they should not putting, be putting as much emphasis on if their goal is muscle size and they should be, should be, they then be focusing more so on how many quality sets they're doing per week, going close to failure or close to fatigue. Yeah, I think you can cut it both ways. Yeah. Honestly, um, here's the downside of very hep- high repetition, low intensity hypertrophy training. It doesn't come with any strength gains. So a benefit oh. of putting more weight on the bar yeah. every week, it's going to help strength a lot more than adding more reps. Yeah, okay. So probably something that's appropriate for different phases or different days of training, depending on if you want to do daily undulating or weekly undulating or true linear style or something like that. So you can make an argument both ways. Um, yeah. I think if you're doing like deadlifts and you're doing four sets of four going up, you know, five or 10 pounds every week is probably not driving a whole lot more hypertrophy in that case, Okay. getting to a higher total volume because you're so far down that rep range into the scale. Like you're mm-hmm. at the bottom of it. Yep. Adding load is going to drive more strength, but it's not going to drive more hypertrophy. You probably need to add load. On the end of the spectrum, you know, if you're doing sets of 25, adding more weight is probably going to drive more hypertrophy. Yeah. Now that's a, that's a lot. That, that extra two pounds is magnified over 25 reps. 25 reps, yeah. So that volume load just got okay. really high really fast. Yeah. Right? Adding two more reps, you went from a total rep today of 125 to 128. Yeah. So what? Not, yeah. not really. Yeah. But the volume load, which is the sets and the reps multiplied by the weight, mm. it goes up really high because you're doing three more pounds every single rep. Yeah. So that's just like ding, ding, ding. That just adds the register up really high. Right. So it kind of just depends on what end of the spectrum you're living. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. If you're in the middle, 
doing like eight to 15s and progress however the hell you want. Yeah. We, you mentioned earlier in the in the conversation about you know the bro split and uh, and I think a lot of people probably are following some form of structure like that with their training at the moment. When we talk about frequency, do you have a recommendation in terms of of training frequency for hypertrophy and whether or not it should be broken down into tra- targeting each muscle group twice per week? Yeah, the, the research is jumping back and forth in this one a touch. Mm. Um, you know, initially it kind of looked like hey. Frequency doesn't really matter. It's just a total volume get throughout a week. And now some more recent stuff said, ah, I think a little higher frequency is probably better. You could kind of argue both. Yeah. Let's say I don't have a super strong opinion on this one. Okay. Other than here's what I'll say. Um, if you're getting close to that 10 sets per week range. Um, okay, fine. You could probably split this up into one training session two training sessions. Yeah. If you're trying to hit 20 sets per week for muscle group, getting that shit done in one workout, <laughs> it's just, it's just really hard. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, like the quality is going to be trashed by the end of the session. So surely that comes into play. Yeah. So I think that while well, you could debate back and forth that the actual difference outcome wise is irrelevant. Um, I think that I generally am going to lead towards most people are probably going to be having more success mm-hmm. multiple times per week. Um, and just one other important note on this. People don't do enough frequency in their lower body. So you tend to see things like this. Okay, Monday is biceps. Tuesday is triceps. Wednesday is shoulders. Thursday is all lower body. Yeah. Friday is, you're like, what? Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on here. Like your quads and glutes and hamstrings mm-hmm. and adductors and calves all got the same amount of training yeah. as your forearm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Like you gotta, or they'll do that and they'll be like, Oh, Tuesdays are leg days. But then I also do legs on Saturdays. Cause I do the elliptical. No, like no, 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 no. Yeah, like, that's fuck. not leg day. That's not fucking leg, <laughs> not day. leg day. Track day is not leg day. <laughs> track day is cardiovascular. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, yeah. Like if you're trying, you're wondering why your, your glutes aren't growing. Well, you're only lifting your glutes one day a week and you're mm. doing your biceps three day a week because your biceps are also doing a little bit of work when you're doing back work and yada, yada, yada. So. Moving, uh, moving towards rest and, you know, I want to be um, very mindful of your time. So I think it'd probably be best if we, we just stick, stick with the training uh, side of things today and maybe hopefully down the track we can, we can touch on some nutrition stuff in a separate episode. Uh, breaking the rest down into to two separate um, conversations, I guess. How much should people be resting or is there a guideline for rest between sets? And then also like how long should someone be giving themselves between targeting a specific muscle group? So let's say they target chest on a Monday, International Chest Day. Uh, and then how long how long should they be waiting in terms of having that back in their, their training clip for the week to target chest again? Okay, cool. Rest intervals is the phrase that we use for the amount of rest you take per set. Yep. Right. So you put the barbell down. How long do I wait before I go again? For forever, we said 30 seconds to 60 seconds is optimal, maybe 90 seconds. But now it looks pretty clear if rest intervals are irrelevant. So if you want to go anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes between sets, it's totally fine. With Mm -hmm. the caveat, if you take a shorter rest, you get a higher metabolic stress. Mm -hmm. That means the total volume or the load is going to have to come down. Yeah. Fine but you're just getting to hypertrophy through a different mechanism. 
Right. Stress, metabolic stress. And do you have a preferred you, method out of those two? No, no, because here, here's the, here's the downside. Here's the catch. If you take the longer rest interval approach, so you're going to wait two to three or four minutes where you're going to be on your damn fucking phone, you know, like scrolling through shit and just clogging up the machine. Um, that works with a major, major, major caveat. You then have to go way heavier yeah. or do more reps. Like you have to do more total because you're not getting the metabolic stress. Okay. So you have to head towards mechanical tension. Mm-hmm. So you, you cannot do the same work on both two approaches and rest way longer on one and get the same hypertrophy. That's not going to work. Okay. So if you rest longer, you've got to do heavier or more reps or more total sets or something, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Hypertrophy mm-hmm. training means fatigue. Yeah. So you, you got to do it. So um, I think there's argument for both. Yep. No question. Obviously the longer rest, the more it's going to benefit strength development as well. Yeah. Because you're going to be able to put more weight on yeah. it. Yeah. Or whatever you want to do. Mm. So that's the only mistake. Like when people are now saying, because there's a lot of this, like, hey, two to five minutes is totally fine. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. If you're training hard. Yeah. Like two to five minutes is not going to work if you're mm-hmm. training light. Like, yeah. It's not going to work at all. Yeah. So I don't have a particular, um, I, don't, I don't think either one is, is better. I mean, I think if you're going to, uh, there's fun doing both, right? Like it's pretty fun doing. I mean, you can so, implement you know, so, both throughout the same session, right? Like if your first compound is more geared towards strength. Yeah. 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 Or like, I love, I mean, there's, there's nothing better than, than doing back squats. Right. And you just like, you're going to keep your rest intervals to 60 seconds. And after set one, you're going to be questioning your decision-making after set two, you're going to be questioning life, like your life <laughs> after set three. Like you're going to question everything about your whole world. And you're like, well, I do. Yeah. It's over. Right. You're just fucking done for the day is a wrap. It doesn't work with bench. Like you can do that with bench. You're like, ah, oh, bro, yeah. cool. Just like, yeah. You did that with a big ass lower body lift, like rear for a little bit, split squats or something. You're just like, it's a fucking over. <laughs> Wait, in regards, That's fun too. In regards to the training frequency, so let's say, use the oh, example yeah, yeah. again, like how much should we be giving our muscles to recover between targeting that muscle group? Yeah, I think the bro science is, is pretty good here, right? So probably 72 hours ish is a mm-hmm. pretty good number to hit okay um, you can do some you can play with some microdosing stuff and kind of do right. it daily very small amounts I mean, okay. it seems to be okay too but yeah for most folks what they're mostly doing um i think a monday thursday fang would be a pretty good you know yeah pretty yeah. good target just just before we wrap up um andy you mentioned earlier like uh, when we talk about like periodizing the the training um you touched on you know undulating periodization linear periodization Going after kind of discussing what we've just discussed now, particularly around the intensity and the volume side of things, how important is a, a specific form of periodization with hypertrophy compared to trying, say, building a strength um, in a muscle group or movement? Yeah, in terms of classic periodization stuff, so you're talking about undulating periodization or block periodization or linear or nonlinear, like all these real standard ones, probably not super important. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Like, well, they're not okay. Well, I'll back up with a strength athlete, so weightlifter or powerlifter, or like even a track and field thrower, someone where lifting is a huge, huge part, or yep. not all of their training. Some for some form of intelligent program design. Yep. 
is absolutely mandatory. Yeah. Now, which form of periodization you choose seems to be scientifically irrelevant. Right. So undulating is not necessarily better than linear or vice versa or anything like that. We don't have any differentiation distinction. The vast majority of periodization styles, though, don't have a lot of scientific study. Okay. Um, you can find world champions with all kinds of different methods. Yeah. What's clear, though, is all of them have very high, precise, very uh, clearly thought through programs. They're, they're looking at total yearly amount of reps squatting, mm. total yearly amount of snap, like all these things. That has to happen. Yeah. Okay. For hypertrophy, similar, um, the periodization style probably is a bit irrelevant. You know, whether you again, did block or that uh, stuff matters, probably. Um, it's less relevant than it is for strength, but mm -hmm. still holds true the fact that you have to have some sort of plan. You have to have some sort of modulation in training stimuli or approach. It's probably less important than it is for the strength training folks because they're lifting so heavy so often. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they can't play, right? Um, yeah. Approach is just, it's not as difficult to handle. So you, you have to have some sort of structure and plans, but you can get away with a lot of different things. Fantastic. Andy, uh, we'll wrap things up there, man. Uh, look, I, again, I really do appreciate your time today. I've taken a lot of value from it. And I'm sure the audience has uh, absolutely loved it. So I hope uh, sometime down the track we can we can link up again and, and, and do part two. Um, but again, thank you for your time, man. Uh, really appreciate it. And guys, everyone who's tuned into today's episode, uh, make sure you take a screenshot of this episode on your phone, post it up on your Instagram story, tag myself, tag Andy. Um, we would love to hear your feedback. Um, and yeah, appreciate it, man. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. Likewise, man. Maybe part two come in 2026. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll touch base. I'll follow up 2026. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it.